welcome to Grant Thorne's Risk and Regulation Unraveled podcast. This is our monthly rumble through emerging regulation and developments. Um, I'm David Moore and I'm joined as ever by my colleague uh, Ben Farmer. Say hi, Ben. Hi, David. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. This is uh, this is the July edition of our update, and and I think it's probably going to be a bit of a bumper one, partly because we are uh, we're on our holes in August, so the podcast will be taking a break in August. Um, but but partly it will be a bumper edition because. Heck, there's a lot going on. Um, where do we start? Um, well, I a quick mention, probably the uh, Financial Services and Markets Act has uh, now become law. King Charles has got his uh, buy out or borrowed a pen from someone else or whatever he does. Uh, and he signed it. So did they? Um, they so got a big enough table this time. Or? It would need a big, pretty big table as well, I think, for for uh, for, for the size of the act. Um, not going to talk about what it covers because we've talked about it before. But I guess just to note that from here on out. Everything the regulator is doing is under the powers that that act uh, provides it. So, uh, so we'll see how they play out over time. Um, no, I thought I thought in terms of getting some more detail, oh, the place to start is, is has got to be the final countdown to the 31st of July, which, as uh, all of our listeners um, know and celebrate on a daily basis, is the uh, the go live date for consumer duty. Um, although I think maybe this. Maybe rather than going on to the consumer duty for straight away, there's, I mean, the FCA themselves talk about the consumer duty and cost of living as though it's 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 uh, one thematic area they're working on. Um, and they have been very busy, maybe after a bit of a slow start on this, uh, uh, addressing the cost of living um, challenges. But they've, they've, they've become pretty active in terms of putting out new rules, often at quite short notice, as, as I'm sure you uh, will be able to address. Um, so let's kick off a few examples, shall we? Ben, I know you've been looking looking at these so uh, so I'll, I'll throw them over to you in each, each in turn the ones i've got on my list are um cp2313 which is strengthening protections for borrowers in financial difficulty for in, uh, on consumer credit mortgages and then you know context for that mortgages at six percent maybe going higher um what's that what's that consultation um yeah addressing? so this this one is uh, the latest example of the trend we've been seeing uh, pretty much all year so far where the sort of tailored supporting guidance that came out during the pandemic has been updated, made a bit less pandemic specific, a bit more general, and then made permanent. Uh, so as, as you say, this is the round for consumer credit and mortgages of that guidance. Uh, this particular one, some, some of those guidance documents have been converted into handbook guidance, some into non-handbook guidance. Uh, this particular one is actually handbook guidance and also some rules as well, which is slightly unusual. So there are going to be changes to both uh, CONC and MCOP. Uh, so amongst other sectors, this will capture mortgage lenders and administrators, consumer credit lenders, uh, and for the insurance sector, premium finance firms who had escaped the uh, insurance version of this guidance that they got sort of carved out of and told some more specific guidance is coming later. So this presumably is that. Uh, very similar changes to those seen in the previous similar consultation papers. So there's been a broadening of the scope of the relevant chapters uh, to make sure that to make clear that this support is for customers in any form of payment difficulty, not just pandemic related. Uh, enhancing the SEA's expectations around customer engagement, providing information, uh, including information about money guidance and debt advice options that are available to them expecting firms to consider a wider range of forbearance options, take reasonable steps to ensure those arrangements remain appropriate, so not just moving straight to putting people in default and trying to cancel their arrangements or repossess their homes or whatever, trying to keep those very much as the, the options of last resorts. 
Uh, and for consumer credit, there's an expectation, which is new for consumer credit, but was already in place for mortgage firms, that firms should take into account the customer's individual circumstances when providing forbearance. Uh, there's also a few new measures in there which are separate to the tailored supporting guidance. Uh, this is guidance for consumer credit firms on determining necessary and reasonable costs when setting fees and charges, mm -hmm. uh, making clearer the existing requirement for mortgage firms to record calls and just clarifying, presumably this is part of the post-pandemic life changes, clarifying that that does include video conferencing uh, with any customers who are in a payment shortfall. Mm. Uh, and that consultation is open until the 13th of July, which, based on the date we're recording this, is probably in the past by the yeah. time you're hearing this. So if you yeah. wanted to answer that one, tough. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yes. Okay. So, so one of the facts, one of one of the uh, the factors in play is the speed with which these new rules are being made. Although I take your point, some of these are principles that were um, introduced and then were drawn during COVID. But uh, but also but also there are some quite detailed handbook changes and raised expectations mixed in there, aren't there? That actually kind of I think probably do move the dial. Um, and I know this. I mean, the FCA in press release about the same time as the consultation, they they were talking about the fact they'd already they'd already got 17 different lenders to compensate 100, I think 195,000 borrowers, etc. So so basically, they're already taking action under the existing rules. I guess these these ones will uh, these changes will allow them to be um, to potentially be even more forceful. Um, talking about fast rulemaking, uh, the next one on my list is PS 238 which is titled the mortgage charter but it actually introduces i believe without any consultation whatsoever some 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 handbook changes is that right yes it does so this is so there was an event in june a mortgage summit which was hosted by the chancellor and yeah as part of that a mortgage charter was signed uh, by various parties including industry participants which was kind of a a commitment of how to support mortgage borrowers who are struggling with uh, the high interest rates and inflation and cost of living so these are some rule changes that have been brought in basically to allow firms to meet the commitments they've made in that charter. So lenders will be able to offer borrowers a switch to interest only payments for six months or an extension to their mortgage term to reduce their monthly payments with the option to switch back to their original term within six months. Uh, but the big change here is that both of those can now be offered without an affordability check. Uh, right. So that's resulted in changes to, to the responsible lending rules in MCOB. Right. But yeah, as you say, David, arguably more interesting than the technical change there is the way this has been done. So this policy statement came out on the 30th of June. These new rules took effect on the 30th of June. As you say, there was no consultation there. So interesting to see, is this the start of a more kind of agile approach from the FCA of it using the more extensive yeah. ends of its powers to move a bit quicker? Or I don't know, I do slightly wonder if given the background of this mortgage summit event and the fact the Treasury was already involved, maybe there was an element of everyone was already on the same page with this particular change. Yeah. And maybe they won't use these powers in quite the same way again. We'll, uh, we'll have to slightly wait and we see. We will have to see. Well, that Financial Services and Markets Act does give, in theory, um, the power to move more quickly. So, um, yes, we'll, we'll see. I, 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 it was interesting. But you, you're right. And I guess, you know, there are that many mortgage lenders. It's it's a real, you know, it's a manageable population. So, um so uh yeah, the, the, the ability to maybe do something like this is a bit more feasible a bit of soft consultation as opposed to sort of formally issuing consultation papers etc but but yeah noteworthy i thought noteworthy um uh i mean yeah, i guess guess moving away from the sort of rule changes uh, the fca have been quite busy in, in just saying things haven't they so i know they, they called the bank 
chief executives in, it was reported they were being called in to explain why they weren't passing on um, higher interest rates to savers. Although, although I saw saw online this morning that uh, apparently a number of banks raised their savings rates just before the CEOs walked in the door for, <laughs> for their decision. I'm sure, I'm sure they were going to do that anyway. I'm sure being summoned to the headmaster's office had nothing to do with that decision. <laughs> Um, and, and likewise, in fairness, the, uh, the, the that meeting you referenced apparently was arranged sort of two weeks or so before time, which isn't that surprising. Really, these things don't normally happen overnight. But uh, in the two weeks in between, there had been a lot of noise and letters and so on from the Commons Treasury Committee on exactly this topic. Uh, yeah, this topic, for those not listening, being basically concerns around uh, sort of excess profitability as a result of the way that banks are reacting to increasing interest rates and I guess in particular the the concern is that banks move a lot faster to reflect rate increases for borrowers than they do for savers I mean I know from my own very anecdotal personal experience every time the base rate moves I've normally got an email about the rate on my credit card going up within about two hours flat (laughs) and then it normally takes three or four days for the one for my savings account to follow Uh, the, the Guardian have quoted some figures from Money Facts saying that uh, the average rate for a two-year fixed mortgage has now got up to 6.47%, uh, whereas the average rate on an easy access savings account is still down at uh, just under 2.5%. Mm. So there is, there's a bit of a gulf there, which is, I think, leading to a, a concern that maybe uh, banks are basically taking the, the interest rates where they do work in their favour and leaving them alone where they don't. Yes. Uh, we don't know much of the detail of what was actually said in that meeting yet. I don't think the FCA yesterday put out a press release, uh, which basically just sort of says, watch this space. Uh, it says that the, the attendees from the banks did accept that they have more work to do in this area. The FCA have basically said, we're going to monitor it. We'll see if we need to do anything. And of course, references to the consumer duty coming at the end yes. of the month, which gives them gives the banks higher obligations in this area and the FCA an extra tool to use against them. You know what? That, 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 as you were talking, that's exactly what I was thinking. That the consumer duty uh, uh, would be the perfect vehicle if the FCA were minded to take some action against the banks to um, to uh, pass on interest rate interest rates. I mean, you know, from a from a fair value point of view, in terms of their essentially their cost of capital, uh, you, you know, the margin they're making on uh, the margin they'll be making on 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 savers will have will have gone up. As a result of interest rate changes, if they haven't passed on the interest rates, and and then sort of the fair value equation has changed as a result. So uh, yeah, yeah, fascinating stuff. Thank you. Um, some quite uh, changing industries, general insurance, particularly home and and well, I think particularly as well motor insurers. There's there's, there's quite and this is cost of living related. Um, there's a focus there on on the amount of uh, those organisations are paying out in claims. Is that is that right? Yeah. So the the FCA says it has uh, observed an increase in claims complaints. So as a result of that, it sent a, a questionnaire to some of the large insurers, uh, kind of assessing their responses against three key expectations of uh, providing appropriate support to customers in financial difficulty, ensuring customers get access to fair value products, and ensuring that claims are handled promptly and fairly. Uh, so the, the support to customers in financial difficulty all uh, sort of build on the themes we were talking about at the top of the podcast about the uh, increased supporting guidance the insurance sector was one of the earlier sectors to have that tailored supporting guidance converted into draft rules actually that consultation has now closed and it's just literally in the last couple of days been converted into a policy statement so the finalized guidance is now out for the insurance sector might be part of why in in terms of 
uh, appropriate support for financial difficulty doesn't actually like any particularly huge concerns coming out of this work. FCA saying they've not seen an increase in sort of policies being cancelled for non-payment or anything like that. But yes, uh, claims payments has turned into a bit of a focus area, uh, partly around lengthy handling times. And in particular, the regulator says it's discovered instances of motor insurance customers being offered a price lower than the car's fair market value after it's been written off. Uh, FCA highlighting that's against existing FCA rules and relevant firms have been told to put these wrongs right and where necessary provide redress to affected customers. Uh, I know in the, in the news over the last few days, we've seen at least one of the large insurers has been publicly putting notices on their website, alluding to the fact that they are wow. undertaking a past business review in this area. Uh, the review also found some firms were unable to show they were monitoring customer outcomes well enough. Uh, two things that they've highlighted, which I think certainly from my work in the sector have been common themes. I don't know, David, in the sectors you work in, how, how common these are. Uh, better information sharing needed where insurers deal with intermediaries who settle claims. That admittedly fairly insurance specific. That's probably not coming up in many other sectors. Uh, but also some firms failed to show they were adequately able to identify vulnerable customers in need mm. of additional support. Mm. I think certainly the 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 ever present theme mm. for, for years now on this has been, oh, we've got a vulnerable customer flag on our system. OK, how often do you use it? Uh, and then they, they run some numbers and go, we've got four vulnerable customers. Yeah. Which against the wider customer base doesn't look like many. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, mm, yes, I mean, it, it, it's a big enough, uh, since 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 we all have owned the motor insurers and since claim volumes are, you know, high, you know, just this is a normal thing. You've got to think if if, if they are going after the big insurers and, and, and putting pressure to do past business reviews, et cetera, that, that could be a pretty extensive piece of work for a lot of a lot of organizations so um yeah i guess we could watch 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 this space but uh but it's interesting that they fcf said you know this is uh this is this is stuff they're pursuing under the old rules i they don't feel they need the consumer duty to 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 uh, make this uh make this land so um although i can't help but think consumer duty will probably make it easier to um, to, it to it so. certainly will, and it will probably, it'll, it'll certainly, I suspect, make the tone of any follow-up letters that little bit more aggressive, won't it? Okay, so that's a big area of thematic work. It's obviously cost of living related. Uh, a couple of, well, well, it's one actually uh, still on my list. Uh, the FCA banned referral fees for debt packages. So, so these, these are the debt packages are the ones that sort of take your uh, usually uh, in arrears. Uh, personal debts and 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 help um help um renegotiate um those with 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 lenders potentially get your payments your payments down and and yes historically um those organizations have been able to pay referral fees haven't they to uh to to basically introduces to yes absolutely and yeah the, the fca concern has been that because of those referral fees these firms may have been uh introducing customers to solutions that are not the correct ones for them uh, mm. They give an example in the press release of uh, one customer who was homeless was recommended an individual voluntary arrangement costing them £6,000 when had they instead been uh, subject to a debt relief order, they could have been debt free in one year for £90. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's it's basically your classic yeah. inappropriate incentives, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, conflicts yeah. of interest. Yes. Yes, I, I, I guess if you if the analogies across other parts of the FS sector have long since been eliminated, pretty much. So, so it's, I guess this is just a, entirely to be expected. Um, okay. Um, 
I suppose the only other thing I was, I would think with cost of living broadly on the agenda, I know um, Andrew Bailey, who is uh, in charge of inflation, I believe is his job title. I can't remember exactly, uh, well, exactly. Uh, uh, well, in charge of making inflation. <laughs> well, certainly in charge of explaining inflation. I believe he was he was in, in doing his annual report to the uh, Treasury Select Committee. Was that was that a lively occasion? It's, yeah, so he yes, it's, it's a written report, so there's no sort of Q and A in there to to pull out from from the bit I read. Uh, it's it's fairly dry. Says as you'd expect about an unprecedented situation in the 25 year history of the Monetary Policy Com- Committee. Uh, inflation peaked at 11.1 uh, percent, raising interest rates as a result. Uh, it reiterates several times that reducing inflation is his absolute top priority. Uh, talks about wanting to get back to the two percent target, which uh, yeah. obviously looks more and more challenging the, the further the further we go. Yeah. Uh, at at the time this was written, which was in sort of mid May, the MPC's forecast was suggesting that they would hope to get there within sort of two to three years uh, to be back at or near two percent. Um, does acknowledge the sort of slowing economic growth, or that's gradually becoming now the, the no economic growth. Yeah. Um, but just sort of emphasises repeatedly that his view that the most helpful thing the MPC can do for the nation's wider finances is to reduce inflation. Um, he does make a point of emphasising that uh, the, the impacts of all of this are being felt by households across the United Kingdom, most acutely by those on lower incomes, that many people face difficult choices and have had to cut back even on essentials. Um, he says that these experiences weigh heavily on my mind, which... I suspect might be an attempt to avoid another backlash like the one he got when he told us all not to ask for a pay rise a little while back or yeah. uh, the, the bank's chief economist basically said we should all just accept being poorer. To be fair to Mr Bailey, not that many people do this very often it seems at the moment, but I thought I'd have a go. I did whilst uh, just googling to double check he had actually said that about the pay rise, did find a couple of articles that he's foregone his own pay rise, which okay you look at his salary compared to the wider country possibly there's a limit to how much sympathy, but at least he's not being as overtly hypocritical as he very easily could have been. So true, true. Now I'm I'll be only favour of giving him a bumper pay rise when he gets inflation down to two percent. So um, performance related pay in action. Okay, th- thank you, thank you. Yes, okay. So that's what I said. We'll we'll obviously be talking about cost of living for some time to come. Um, uh, given all the economic indicators you, 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 you referenced there. Um, it doesn't sound like Andrew Bailey thinks it's going to reverse very quickly or overnight. Um, we, we, we were talking about some of the measures the regulator, principally the FCA, have taken around cost of living. I guess they talk about cost of living and consumer duty as a single kind of thematic area. And that was my intention here, actually, to do so. So let's let's wrap in some of the consumer duty specific news to the extent there is, there is news at this point. Um, I saw the FCA posted as the results of a survey they'd commissioned on the readiness of firms. What, what did that uh, What did that say? Yeah, it's so like this is the, the readiness for, for the go live on the 31st of July, uh, to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. So 1,200 firms surveyed. Uh, survey itself was done during Q1, but the results have just been published at the end of June. So actually, that immediately makes me think it'd be interesting to see if this survey was done again today, how some of these figures would have changed because. During Q1, uh, 64% of the firms surveyed said they would be fully compliant by the 31st of July. A further 23% said they would comply with most requirements by the deadline, but would still have some work to do. My gut instinct says if you ask those same questions again today, quite a few uh, firms will probably have moved from the first category 
into the seven, into the second. Seven <laughs> percent uh, of firms surveyed said that they would still have significant work to do after the deadline, or possibly even had not started work. Um, which is right. Okay. Unreassuring in Q1, even more unreassuring if anyone's still saying that now. Uh, and that two particular sectors got singled out: uh, retail finance providers and debt advice firms. Uh, scoring consistently lower than others on engagement, understanding, and implementation progress. Mm. Uh, and the FCA predictably says it's issuing further direct communications to these firms and working with industry bodies to amplify messages. Uh, so it sounds like in those particular sectors, perhaps the message hasn't quite got through as clearly as the FCA would like it to have done. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. In a way, it's one of those surveys where I obviously haven't done a survey of a thousand odd firms, but I would have guessed <laughs> were probably going to be the be the results um top to bottom I, I think i'd recognize that um uh so yeah you want to raise a question though uh, you know i presume any any self-respecting board at the at the end of july 31st of july will be turning to its compliance officer maybe in particular and saying well have we done enough are we compliant with the consumer duty and, and i i know you know, a lot of my clients are going to be you know, giving a very carefully nuanced replies to that, you know, substantively uh, this, that and the other. Um, I did see, and I don't know whether this might be a useful tool for firms, the FCA also probably put up a web page on, on its 10 questions um, that uh, that firms should ask themselves about about what they've done on the consumer duty. Did you, I don't know whether you saw that. Um, yeah, probably not worth going through all 10, but I guess it, I, I did strike me that's that, that's you know, the FCA think you should be asking yourself those questions. So you probably should actually ask yourself those questions. But very much. I think a, a couple of the questions are doing that classic teacher thing of asking you how happy you are with your work. And clearly, mm. if you turn around and say, yeah, I think I've got this right, teacher's going to look at you and, and not be very impressed. I mean, there's someone here. What action have you taken as a result of your fair value assessments and how are you ensuring this action is effective in improving consumer outcomes? Well, I think elsewhere, we've already fairly recently seen the FCA uh, not being too happy with the fact that it's not seen any material number of products yeah. disappearing from the market following their yeah. value assessments and yeah. therefore suggesting they're not changing much. Uh, similarly, what data MI and other intelligence are you using to monitor the fair value of your products and services on an ongoing basis? I, I mean, client engagements, certainly that I've seen, I'd imagine similar for you, David, MI's constantly been one of the biggest struggle areas for firms, yeah. not not even yeah. so much in terms of we can't produce it, we can't get it, almost the opposite of we can produce a huge amount, but how do we boil this down to yeah. what are the useful bits and actually make so, it usable? Yeah. Yes. Um, and I think one, one final one to put out is do individuals throughout your firm, including those in control and support functions, understand their role and responsibility in delivering the duty? I think that would be, be a really interesting one to put out. You know, has this escaped the project team and actually you know, culturally fully permeated yeah. the firm, or is it still actually there's a product team, a project team, and then suddenly on first of August they're going to go, okay, this is BAU now. Yeah. Here you go, rest of the business, and is the rest of the business actually set up for that and ready for that or not? Yeah, and that last one's an interesting one because it came through in the earlier. I'm going to say Jan, January, it may be, but it was around that the turn of the year when the FCA produced some thematic commentary on implementation plans. And I know that was focused on bigger firms, but but one of the things there was there with it. They were were not happy that they were well they were they weren't seeing as much action as they expected on the culture side of the uh, the, the change which is 
which is obviously where that question feeds in. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I just, it, it strikes me that those 10 questions, I mean, some I suspect a lot of firms will be able to answer in a fairly positive way. Some some then might cause them to recognise there's more to do, but I do, my my initial thought upon seeing it is is uh, if you are wondering, um, you know, as a board, uh, what you should be uh, thinking and asking on the 31st of July, then um, that's probably a decent starting point in terms of assessing your own readiness. Okay, all right. That's if anyone's still with us and isn't interested in the consumer duty or the cost of living crisis, you know, like the independently wealthy amongst us, um, we'll uh, we'll we'll segue on to some other. Uh, some other some other topics, uh, and because frankly there is a lot actually, uh, uh, as, as I alluded at the start of the podcast, there's a lot to cover. So we're into, into the in other news phase of uh, phase of the podcast. Thank you for sticking with us. Right, I've got a couple of things here on, uh, in 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 the wild wonder world of, um, of investment management and investment funds. Um, first one is uh, FCA policy statement twenty three seven. Uh, so this is broadening access to long-term asset funds. For those that don't know, long-term asset fund is basically something that holds illiquid private assets um, in, in a collective investment vehicle. Actually, the um, the uh, legal framework for that, I think it's 2021, and, and we went about a year without anybody actually in launching a, a fund. And I, I think there are now three, maybe four that have been launched. Uh, but one of the challenges has been you know, question marks around whether they were going to get much up, up uptake in terms of, uh, of being viable was um, uh, how broad a base of uh, customers could they be aimed at. And to the this point, up to PS twenty three seven, they were restricted to uh, professional investors. So basically, they were they were um, to use uh, the relevant terminology, non mass market investments. You could not a retail investor could not invest in them, um, and that's changed so this is in the broader political sphere of of the government and i know the labor party are are using the same kind of language as well around um you know making capital work more effectively in the uk to 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 to, to make a you know sort of entrepreneurial economy work you know which usually means investing in things that aren't necessarily already big from big companies that are listed to to allow people to uh to allow money to flow to 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 sort of smaller um non-listed enterprises through debt or um equity um then uh you know th th then it, 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 in order to to make that directional flowing capital happen we need to make some legal and rule changes and this and this is the concept for that so so they now um as a result of this policy statement retail investors can invest in um long-term asset funds and you know they're they're not day daily traded there are liquidity restrictions that mean you can't get your money back so it's not going to be appropriate for everybody and there is a there's still a requirement now to have an appropriateness test uh, on that on an investor which will limit things somewhat um uh, but also i think critically they've, they've also thrown open the doors to investments from uh defined contribution pension schemes so um you know you could invest in an LTAF by way of your dc pension which is potentially quite a big source of of, of money um as well so 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 that's 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 rule set is is now on the books um in that I, yeah. I appreciate you're trying to move us on from the consumer duty but really for a consumer understanding perspective that moving a product that is certainly complex enough that i've got lost already ah. uh from from a non-mass market to a mass market position that presumably for a lot of firms are they not just going to think this might be uh a, quite a large challenge to actually be able to distribute this to a consumer duty yes. standard 
so there was uh, well has been and uh, is, is feedback from say the investment platform as well of you know like, most funds are are traded these days with, with sort of retail investors uh so those platform businesses have, have given feedback that they're concerned it's you know it's, it's difficult for them there's a, there's a, the, 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 they will need to make a determination whether it's appropriate for an investor to be buying an LTAF or not um and um consumer duty might imply that they shouldn't take that chance um I'm I'm a bit more optimistic I think you know the, the appropriateness test is not a new not a new concept I think uh, I think there's a um I think they'll find a way um they've certainly got other assets on their on their books which need appropriateness tests so so so, so yeah I mean you're, you're absolutely right there is a consumer protection arguably if you were if you were committed your absolute top priority was consumer protection then you would not allow them to invest in LTAFs for over liquidity concerns and, and, and other uncertainties. Um, but this, like I say, this overriding kind of political push to get more capital into investments like this is is, is taking over here. Um, so fundamentally, people are still allowed to invest and take the risks that come with investing, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah uh, in, 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 in in an LTAFs are now on the list of things they can they can do that with. Um, so um, marginally related, uh, interesting timing, but the, 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 at the same time, the, the FCA have been producing the results of um, uh, their multi-firm review on fund liquidity management. So these are investment managers and how well they um, manage the liquidity risks within funds, uh, particularly, uh, and, and this would not be LTAFs, but particularly um, in sort of day traded uh, funds that you got you know, daily liquidity on. Um, and, and they Read a DCO letter and produced the results of that thematic, uh, being quite critical of um, practices in some managers. I think it was only about 18 firms in the in the review. I think if I remember correctly, that kind of that kind of ballpark. Um, and and they and they did uh, actually just I, I didn't some very good practices actually, but there's a bit of a gap, a gulf between the good and the bad. I think one of the, the interesting areas they focused on is um, the uh, the approach to liquidity stress testing so that, that some firms have adopted so so you know you know you've got liquidity daily liquidity so you could have scenarios and there's this thing called stress tests that firms are supposed to do um scenarios where you have 10 percent of the fund you know decides they want to get, the, get their money back at the same time and uh if, if they do that then you're gonna have to sell investments and produce you know liquid cash that you can you can use to settle those redemption requests very quickly um and they identified a number of firms that said, yes, we're OK, we could meet a 10% or a 20% redemption because we could basically just sell sell all the liquid things in our portfolio. Um, uh, all the most liquid things would get sold um, and therefore we're OK, we, we, we would we'd be OK in a stress test. Um, and the FCA have not, not unjustifiably said yet, but you wouldn't do that in practice because if you, if you just sold the 20% of the most liquid things, then the remaining 80% would be concentrated less liquid um, and, and you'd be disadvantaging you know the remaining investors you'd be leaving them with an even less liquid um, set of investments so so actually actually this 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 approach you've you've taken to dealing with the liquidity stress on paper is not one you would actually be able to do in practice and they've criticized you know the fund boards of these you know, authorized fund managers essentially that's the regulatory terminology this the fund boards for not not being um, challenging enough on those, and in some cases not being independent enough on those actually to to really um, put their uh, you know other group companies in particular to, to the to the sword over over the approach they take to fund liquidity. So so some some interesting stuff. They're obviously very specific to 
to, to, to the fund industry, but um, I think it's it's relevant. Uh, also relevant was a speech by Ashley Alder. We will not mention for a few months, but of course, he's, since January, he's been the chair of the SEA. Um, and he was at an international conference and he was talking about uh, the need to, and, and this international conference was focused on taking the steps towards bringing uh, non-bank, um, some of, the, some of the, the, the non-banking industry more into the regulatory um, spotlight. Um, so funds, the off-balance sheet, funds, SPVs, et cetera, i.e. I non-bank pools of risk have become increasingly important since the financial crisis. And he was just expressing the view that um, the regulators needed to have better line of sight on just what kind of risks were sitting within these off-balance sheet um, entities in order that they could respond to quotes, uh, you know, regulate th th those risks more effectively. So, so uh, there's a so we've talked about it before, but there's clearly a you know going to be some further work done on an international basis around around getting more um, data at the very least uh, on um, off balance sheet um, uh, in, in investment vehicles. Um, I'll continue on for a bit because there's another one coming out of the FCA that's worth a quick mention, partly because it it just covers a lot of firms, 20, 23,000 firms in total, apparently. This is policy statement 233. Um, it's the new baseline financial resilience report, FIN 073. So this is a report that a regulated firm will need to submit on a quarterly basis, starting from January next year, so covering the 31st of December. Um, and it's basically all FCA regulated firms, solo firms, except credit brokers, which, which is quite a large number, actually. Um, or MIFID pre investment firms. So a couple of insurance brokers, IFAs, you know, everything else. 23,000 of them. Um, and, and it's basically mimicking information that the FCA gathered on an ad hoc basis during COVID. So when they were concerned that because of yeah, COVID, um, the, the events and lockdowns around COVID, that the financial firms might start falling over. They, they started asking, asking some some sort of survey based questions and this is putting that into a standing quarterly report is only five data fields i think it's kind of a level what's your liquid assets um what are your average monthly cash needs to fund your fixed costs uh what's your quarterly profit and loss, or profit or loss what's your year-to-date revenue what are your net assets on the balance sheet um so basically with these, these five data fields it, it's, it'd be quite easy for the regulator to form a view on whether you're trending towards failure or not and indeed how quickly you might you might get there um so it will certainly give them yeah a new tools in order to to maybe ask questions of some organizations that they feel are not financially strong um but i think you know, it's, 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 it, 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 it's a new new return like i say a large number of firms are gonna have to do it in january of next year interestingly does not replace any of the existing returns that those firms do most of which are either six monthly or annual, so, so it's an, it is an additional return. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's um, one of the one of the things the FCA thinks it needs to do to to get a better grip on on you know, financial resilience um, amongst the firms it's regulating. So um, presumably, hopefully, signals that the FCA is making very strong progress with its data transformation program. Then, because one one assumes they haven't got enough people kicking around to review all of this manually for every firm every yeah. quarter. Well, well, I don't want to. I'm not a whisk kid, but I reckon with Excel, I mean, it's it's the, the, the there's five data fields with Excel. You could build 
a pretty simple um, uh, piece of uh, 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 analysis that would <laughs> would flag problem firms. So, um, so yes, I, I, uh, I yeah, you right. I mean, they're still going to have to have the uh, human resources to actually go out to firms and ask questions and things. But, um, but yeah, on the face of it, they are going to have um, more ammunition than they've ever had before to 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 raise questions around this resilience um, dynamic. Um, well, so we got any other news listing I've got here? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, you talked about this when it was first introduced, Ben. There was a the financial ombudsman had been doing a trial of including in its reports what are they call proactively settled complaints. How's that? Um, yeah, they basically gave an update on that, didn't they? Yeah, so so historically, FOS for each firm would just report the number of cases <laughs> where there was a change in outcome after a complaint was escalated to them versus the number where there was no change in outcome and then back in sort of late 2021 into q1 2022 they had a pilot uh, which seemed successful so they're now going to pilot it again between uh, april this year so it's actually already started and uh, march next year uh, introducing a third category which is proactively settled so the idea here is really just to basically try and incentivize firms to settle complaints early where it's appropriate to do so rather than otherwise firms just think well we've already got the report that it went to FOS we don't really want the report then that we had our decision overturned by FOS so let's just let the let the process run to its conclusion in the hopes that actually we can get no change in outcome on this case. Uh, so complaints will count as proactively settled if the firm makes an offer or commits to making an offer within 14 days of the FOS advising the firm that it's moved a complaint to an investigation. Mm -hmm. uh, it won't count as proactively settled if the customer doesn't accept the offer. Uh, and it also won't count if the firm makes its offer directly to the customer after FOS have moved the case to an investigation. Mm -hmm. So all of these offers have to go through the FOS to yeah. count. And that's particularly interesting because the FOS have said that they will assess whether or not they think an offer is a fair resolution to the complaint before contacting the customer will expect the business to be able to explain why it's fair giving us evidence to support its decision and if we don't think the offer is fair we'll tell the customer who can still choose to accept the offer but if they don't the FOS will continue its investigation so mm. the FOS is not just going to be sort of dispassionately and impartially saying oh the firm has offered you this they will also be saying and we don't think it's fair and you shouldn't take it potentially policing it yeah so sorry not Yes, it's obviously not. It's not going to reduce the FOS's workload, is it? I mean, it's, it's they're actually actually adding extra work for themselves. I, I, I guess, albeit the flip side might be, you know, some of these things will be off their books more quickly. But, but yeah, um, okay. Yeah, so they're 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 they're, they're obviously still uh, intending to police uh, how firms are, are using yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, they are. That so they're saying for now, uh, case fees will continue. These will. Proactively settled cases will attract the standard case fee still. I think they've they've acknowledged that if this becomes something permanent, there'll be more work to be done there to consider whether that's the appropriate way to do this or not. Uh, okay, it's, yeah, it's interesting true. that yeah. the one of the examples they cite of things that went into proactively settled in the prior um, pilot was uh, where a bank didn't feel it had made an error but made a proactive offer to settle a complaint which the customer accepted, therefore not accept, not affecting the firm's change in outcome result. So that that it, it, there's obviously always a tension in all complaints handling between sort of 
making the commercial decision of actually it costs us less to just offer a goodwill payment, even if we think we've done nothing wrong, then it will cost us to actually do all the admin to rebut the complaint. Yeah. I, I wonder if this perhaps makes it slightly easier to trend towards the the first approach there, because it's uh, obviously if you're if you're now also not going to get the hammering of your FOS overturn rate going sky high. And particularly if in future then something different is happening with FOS uh, referral fees, then I mean, I don't know, arguably that tension's always existed in complaints handling and this isn't anything new, but I wonder if it just makes it slightly easier for, for firms to more often say, you know what, if the customer will take 200 quid, let's just let them have mm. 200 quid or however mm. much, which I guess is sort of better for customers too. I mean, it's more people getting more money, right? Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, Regulated firms with deep pockets are much more likely to to do that than than than, than others potentially. So we might see a sort of two speed, two speed approach to complaints, of course. But yes, okay. Well, but but it's still it's still a pilot. Even even though it's been extended, it's still it's still classified as a pilot. Isn't yes. It? So, yeah, yeah. Still okay. still pilot at this stage. Okay. All right. Let's move on. Quite a change of pace to a couple of um, POA related um, developments. Uh, one that I think is is, is quite focused, but we'll have more importance down the track is is their supervisory statement one one of 23 um which is them issuing their rules on model risk management uh so it's just aimed at banks so it's basically internal models used to calculate capital but um i think the the, the, the key thing i would say is um is, is worth that people noting is that it's um it's essentially very much principle based and it sets out admittedly over 20 odd pages Different principles, control principles, control objective type principles that 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 should be achieved at every stage in, in a model's life. So from you know initial development through testing through implementation through monitoring, etc. So so it's very complete and it, and it deals with governance and and senior management ownership. Um, I think it's actually a pretty good articulation of model risk management, which is drawn on other sources. Um, um but uh yeah you know and the banks that are subject to it will obviously have to 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 um you know look at what they do and, and potentially refine it to comply but i i, I can see and i'll come on to something a bit later where it's explicitly mentioned i can i can see that there will be other areas of regulatory interest which involve supervising models where these principles will be rolled out so if you like the the uk standard for model risk management principles of model risk management I think are being defined in in this in this supervisory statement um, and ultimately will be more relevant to more than just the banks um the um the more briefly uh they also issued the POA policy statement 7 of 23 uh which is basically actually I think it might be Bank of England uh, headed actually but because it, it's the deposit protection rule so you know how much how much uh, in individuals deposits uh, deposits are protected in the event of a bank failure uh, as I said briefly because there's almost no change the, the most relevant takeaway I, I would say is is that the uh, there are there's almost, there has been for a while a high balances exception so if just because you happen to be selling your house and you haven't yet planned to moving your money etc um something like that you had a very temporary high balance you would get extra protection under the old rules uh, as an individual um, and and the, the same protections have now been extended to, to 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 trusts as well. So so they would also be eligible for those. But uh, that's probably not terribly exciting. What I found much more exciting though um, is that the FCA, going back to the FCA, are now providing dating advice. Um, maybe I'm misreading it, but they uh, uh, they uh, they they issued a um, uh, well, it's a web page and some press releases around that uh, we. Uh, 
um, younger people, obviously, because they're being aimed at, um, uh, should, uh, should, what was it, should, they should invest like they date. Um, yes, yeah, I find it that a lot of people uh, think more long-term when dating than they do when investing. Uh, just 31% of people, apparently, are investing to earn more money than they would in the savings account, while almost half invest time in dating to find a life partner. Uh, people are apparently 18% more likely to be influenced by social media when making investment decisions than in their dating choices, which right. in some of the investment advice I see floating around on social media is terrifying. I mean, the state of some of that just grammatically, let alone in terms of being suitable <laughs> advice. Oh, yes. The, 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 the fin, fin influencers, isn't that? The financial <laughs> influencers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, yeah, well, you know, the, the, the idea of Telling the Tinder generation to, you know, date, they invest like they date. I don't know, you know what could possibly go wrong. Um, uh, although it did get me thinking because I didn't, I didn't picked up a, uh, the text of a speech by the FCA's chief operating officer Emily Shepherd. She was giving a speech on culture, um, and in that she was talking about uh, in the way organisations should, should recruit and motivate. And she she talked about Gen Z, and she talked about how, you know, based on her view and I guess some some studies. You know, the, to motivate Gen Z, you had as an organisation to offer them a purpose. So this is basically saying that FS firms should have a purpose as part of their culture, and that and that was a good way of recruiting and motivating sort of Gen Z talent. Um, and and she was you know wrapping consumer duty into that as as, as an example of of, of of purpose or can could be used within the purpose of the organisation. Um, and, and and yeah, I was just I just then then I sort of, when I put that into context of this this dating advice I'm thinking um there's, there's a the, the FCA very focused on Gen Z at the moment and uh and uh you know are, are, are we looking at a, a, a the regulation being driven by the worldview of Gen Z I don't know I may be reading too much too much into it I feel like I almost certainly am reading too much into it but I think uh <laughs> I think the, the prominence Gen Z is being given in some of the, the FCA comments is, is is potentially noteworthy I'll I'll, I'll leave it there for now. I'll leave it there. Um, uh, the other, th well, I've got a few things still to cover. Um, so for those that are still with us, thank you. As a, it's a bumper bumper month and I make no apologies other than the various apologies I've already made for the length of the podcast. Um, uh, we'll try and, and rattle through these just to make sure that we've covered everything that needs to be covered. Um, one thing that is very quick, I think, is the UK and the Europeans have signed the Memorandum of Understanding on Financial Services. Um, actually, as I think my, my, most of you who, who follow these things will know, it probably really makes next to no difference. Uh, and actually, sort of memorandum, memorandums of understanding between the different regulatory bodies around supervision and investigations, etc., have already been have already been in, in force for a while. So um, this is really a, a memorandum of understanding to sort of for talks about talks type of. Um, so I don't expect it to make uh, too great a difference um, in practical terms anytime soon. Uh, it was always interesting the, the different press conference answers that were being given between the UK delegation and the EU delegation as to just how important this was. But, you know, that's that's politics. So um, we'll, we'll pass on that. Um, uh, I've got I've got I've got a little subset of, of topics which I've term I've decided to call Scotch Corner. The Scotch Corner part of the podcast, which is which is the the things that have happened that I uh, maybe tenuously in some cases are going to link to the Edinburgh reforms. That's, that's, that's the Scottish link for you there. Um, and and please don't write in and tell us that Scotch Corner is in England. I know it is. It's uh, 
it, it just seemed like one of those witty podcast things see people like us would say um the uh but there have been a few things which uh which fit fit within the that have developed moved on um which fit within that Edinburgh reformers agenda and i was going to run through them quickly one was uh, probably the most and i'm sure it's the most important one at this point but it will become the most important at some point um pra consultation paper 1223 which is the review of solvency 2 adapting to the uk market so this is changing solvency to the capital regime for insurers um it's 100, 180 pages long it's actually only the first of two consultation papers the next one's due in september and actually the second one is going to cover the matching adjustment which is perceived to be the area where the biggest potential capital freeing up benefit could take place so so arguably the the bigger interest the bigger impact is going to be on the um in, in that second cb but the first one uh does cover some important stuff tries to do two things i think it tries to reduce the cost of complying so it simplifies calculations in some areas which should cost reduce the cost of producing them um it's flagging the, the intention to move to a uh, principle-based rule on internal models so those banking rules on model risk management would land as part of this change consultation i think in insurance so yeah, it's already expanding out beyond banking so so move to principle-based rules on internal models which i also think should reduce cost um uh and obviously also on cost it's trying to streamline the reporting to the pra so reduce costs there and the second area this consultation paper addresses is, is things I think would probably make life a bit easier for smaller insurers. So it sort of ups, ups the thresholds, the size thresholds for insurers before they fall into the solvency two requirements. We still have the, the non S two uh, tier of or insurers, and, and and I guess that would extend, expand as they raise the uh, thresholds. Um, and it's also reducing the capital that needs to be held by UK branches of non-UK insurers and quite a lot of insurance businesses done in the UK, certainly the, the commercial end of things that they by branches. So it would need, um, they, they would uh, potentially be able to hold less capital in the UK. And uh, thirdly, I guess, same, sort of easing the regime for smaller firms that they're, they're talking about a, a new authorizations approach that would allow insurers to sort of trade under a light solvency two regime whilst they're still getting started and which is quite similar to the what's existed for banks challenger banks for quite some time so you've got to get partially authorized and then fully authorized the tra training wheels regime as i sometimes talk about it so 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 that so, so second second cell consultation probably be the big numbers one in terms of making the biggest capital difference but but there's definitely some tangible things in this first consultation but to move away from the european standards at least uh insolvency two um similar but less significant fca policy statement 23.4 which is improving equity secondary markets this is about the geekiest consultation paper i've ever read and i can i've read quite a few geeky ones it's covering the trade reporting requirements at the end of day trade reporting uh, report, reporting requirements that fall on investment firms under the MIFIR european regulation uh, basically, it's, it's tidying up some definitions. It's, it's extending slightly the, the types of trades that are exempt from reporting. It's changing some of the reporting fields and uh, what, what needs to go in individual fields. Um, I, I guess uh, probably the most significant change is it's, it's moving away from sort of complicated waterfall system of rules that determines because every trade will have two, at least two parties in it. So, so under the existing rules, there's a very uh, well, not complicated, but a very, very rigid uh, set of rules which determines which of those parties to a trade is the one that has to report it. 
Um, and uh, that sometimes ends up in you know someone having the obligation that doesn't really want to have the obligation isn't really equipped to to report in that way. So so the new rules will allow organisations to basically agree between themselves who's going to report, um, and and that will that will help. Uh, although I think we actually haven't gone as far in in flexibility there as as, as a lot of the industry was hoping. Um, and yeah, a, a couple of other things about tick sizes being aligned to global markets um, where the UK specific markets are relatively shallow. Um, that's nothing that's going to be life changing for anyone on this call, probably, but but just just worth noting as a as a sort of trending away from the European version of the same the same rules. Um, the next one I've got on here is uh, consultation paper twenty three eleven, which is FCA, and that's uh, moving remuneration. Well, it's changing the, the the application of the remuneration rules for dual regulated firms, specifically banks and and the largest investment firms. So they're falling into PRA and FCA rule both. Basically, it's this is this is this is moving forward on the discussion that's already taken place about upping those thresholds so that the rules around bonus caps. Uh, uh, the two times bonus cap and the rules around having rules in that say you have to claw back, um, you have to have the right to claw back uh, variable pay in the future. Though those are, th this is moving those thresholds. So basically, more organisations uh, fall below the level at which they're mandatory, um, and so yeah, yeah, in theory, more flexibility to 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 pay to have more control over how bonuses are um, are paid, etc. Um, um, I mean, I think I said we 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 we've spoken a few times about just just how you know how does how do the Edinburgh reforms play out? How does the secondary objective, which is now in force under the Financial Services and Markets Act, uh, to promote international competitiveness, play out? Um, I think the examples I've just given are tangible, but not life changing. Um, and Sheldon Mills is obviously one of the FCA directors gave a speech on on the secondary objective. So he's talked about how how the FCA sees um, and has historically seen actually its role around competitiveness. Um, and, I, and I guess my takeaway from that was um, well, whilst in the speech he was definitely giving examples of some radical innovators in other fields, and that was kind of oh, I'm starting to think you know this could be big and bold. Um, what 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 followed was largely around Yes, strong regulation with high standards, and that's the most important contribution the regulator can make to international competitiveness. So, so I guess I guess in the context of that, that that speech in the context of the rule changes that we've seen so far, I think does does uh, does point to what we've surmised for some time, which is that there aren't going to be a drastic bonfire of, of the regulations here. Um, it's uh, it is still very much focused on some pretty high international standards. Um, it feels like the firm, the, the kind of overall theme remains keep broadly the existing standards, just apply them in a more proportional way, yeah. but not start wholesale removing anything. Yeah, yeah, certainly the, 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 there's nothing in, in, in the things we talked I, talk, I talked about, which which amounts to, you know, significantly rolling back uh, rules. It's it's just changing, changing the money edges. Um, I know it's the uh, HM Treasury is doing a, a, a call for uh, uh, Proposals, I think they call it call for proposals on measuring success in F F F FS regulation. Uh, so it's, um, it's it's just a paper that is uh, is basically asking the industry and stakeholders for suggestions on um, on what measures 
might be used to measure the success of financial regulation. I, we'll see. We'll see what that comes up with. Whether any of those things are introduced. Um, the FCA is apparently soon going to publish a rules review framework, which is going to set out how they, how and when actually they'll they'll, uh, they'll assess how well their current rules are working. So it's a formal process for reviewing enforce rules and, and I guess potentially determining changes. Yeah, measuring their effect and, and changes. So I, 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 we, we, I'll, await, I'll await that rule review framework with interest, I think. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that, that, that's probably enough under um, under the sort of Edinburgh reforms linked um, developments. Um, as much happened as much happened in the green zone this month, Ben, the sort of uh, sustainability agenda. There's been yeah, I'm, I'm sure I saw a film about the green zone once. I seem to recall it was much more exciting than uh, a number of the items we've got today. But uh, it's <laughs> been a true. couple of items. So the the International Sustainability Standards Boards, uh, it's obviously had its uh, sustainability reporting standards out for consultation for quite some time. Uh, but they've now issued their final standards. So the uh, general requirements for the disclosure of sustainability related financial information or IFRS S1 and the requirements for climate related disclosures or IFRS S2. Uh, they've, as I say, been issued in their final reform, final form now. The FCA's responded to it with a press release that basically just says we welcome this development, we support it, we think it meets a clear market demand for complete, consistent and comparable and reliable sustainability disclosures and so on. Uh, References back to back at its launch at COP26 in November 2021, Nikhil Rathi, the CEO, referred to ISSB as a game changer. Uh, SCA thinking that over the last 18 months or so, the ISSB's activity has proven that. And then the second and uh, final item for the Green Zone this month, it's actually rare, this the Green Zone's the quiet bit, it's not very often the case. <laughs> Uh, is the FCA has been engaging with the sustainability linked loans market, I think mainly just to understand the, this new emerging market a bit better. So these are loans that aim to support sustainable activity uh, with interest rates linked to meeting certain agreed sustainability goals. Uh, FCA basically says as part of that work, it's established quite a few concerns, uh, a number of SLLs that don't realise their potential. Uh, that increased trust and transparency is needed, uh, various borrower concerns identified, uh, fears about potential conflicts of interest if banks accept weak targets and count the loan as part of their own sustainable finance quota, things like mm -hmm. that. Um, but despite all of this, the FCA is saying it's not planning to introduce rules or a code of conduct for this market just yet, uh, but it's going to continue to monitor the market and consider whether there's a need for further measures in the future. Yeah, OK. Yeah, I seem to remember there was a the FCA have got an open. Oh, I might close now, but they, they had issued a discussion paper on their approach to sustainable regulation. Um, so which was the big questions about whether they should make making new rules across, you know, more, more potentially multiple areas. So I guess I guess I get I guess to the extent there are new rules, it probably they probably follow from that that discussion paper rather than um, rather than this point. Yeah, most likely. OK, all right. Well, uh, Thank you for the green zone. Um, enforcement roundup. This is the piece of the podcast we normally pop it near the end where we we talk about all the gory fines and bans that the uh, the regulators are, are and there's a little bit here to cover. Um, uh, like most uh, 
enforcement actions we ever talk about the actual events involved are usually years and years in the past um but with that um with that caveat uh, there's still some reasonably interesting pieces here so so ednf man will find 17 million pounds and his sort of governance and oversight failings so so they were one of the many organizations that were involved in for, the, for those that and there have been other fines in this space. Those who remember the, the the Danish trading tax fraud. Basically, it was it was it was, it was a um, a um, well question why it was fraud. It depended which lawyers you listened to. It was a fraud or it wasn't a fraud. But but anyway, there were various um, uh, quote air quotes transactions uh, papered that made it appear that um, um, more than one party held shares in, in Danish enterprises at the same time, exactly at that point at which both of those entities could claim uh, withholding tax uh, refunds. So, um, uh, and it was interesting, Denmark actually, I think Germany and other jurisdictions also suffered the same, were, were, were played in the same way. So, so basically it was tax authorities being defrauded. Um, and a number of a number of businesses, FS businesses in London um, did participate in, in, in the trades that that allowed this uh, fraud to happen. So uh, EDNF man have now been fined um, uh, for their failure to, to oversight what their, their traders were up to. Um, the branch of Bank Bank Haviland uh, uh, has been fined 10 million uh, for market manipulation on Qatari bonds. So basically they were yeah, making trades that were well in trades and non-trades that, that were intended to try and create a misleading impression that Qatari bonds and, and indeed the Qatari currency were, were overvalued um and the um uh unlike the EDF man one that one resulted in as resulting three individuals being banned including the branch chief exec um the, the and this won't come as any surprise to you Ben um, pretty much every single case we've seen over in recent times where individuals have been banned, uh, the individuals are appealing. So, um, are they so really? Yes, shockingly, yes, yes. So the, the 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 bank has paid the fine, but the individuals are appealing, which brings us to I think arguably the most interesting item in the enforcement roundup, which is um, a fine and a banning of individuals that we talked about a few months ago was Julius Baer, so the wealth wealth and investment manager. Um, and they were fined for, and, and three individuals were banned, um, basically because they'd be paying introducer fees to a, a rather suspect middleman, as a result of which they were able to to, um, to get the business, the banking business of of um, uh, a Russian group of companies. This is go back to 2014, so you know, but that was in the day when you could actually have Russian clients. Um, but so it was really it was really the the the, the approval of these uh, suspect payments to an introducer um, that were was the problem. Um, so the, the bank paid a fine. The three individuals appealed their bans to the upper tribunal, and the upper tribunal um, overturned the bans. Um, and what they've said, uh, so three individuals. One of the individuals they said was too junior. So this was a, a relationship manager, I think, and, and they felt. You know, you, you couldn't hold someone at that level responsible in that way, which is which is interesting. Um, the two more senior individuals, um, they said uh, that well. So the FCA, FCA, the reason for the FCA given for the ban was the um, a lack of integrity. Specifically, they knew these payments were inappropriate, 
they knew about the payments, knew they were inappropriate, and they just okayed it anyway. That's a lack of integrity. And the FCA said you, that's not a so the Epic Tribunal rather said that that overturned about those bans on the basis that uh, whilst they knew about the payments, they had uh, uh, they had reasonably uh, relied on compliance and other assurance functions to give them comfort that they were acceptable and and thus they they hadn't acted without integrity they had acted in a in a, in a reasonable way um now the upper tribunal has said that uh you know the fca well so the fca can could reconsider the ban the fca tribunal said there may be other grounds why you might want to ban these people's sort or of skills and competence type stuff maybe i don't know um but um but certainly the the integrity point they they've overturned and, and i guess my takeaway from this is is twofold well twofold one interesting makes it harder to ban more junior people i guess makes it makes makes it harder to ban people if they they kind of think they've reasonably relied on compliance uh input on a particular issue um which maybe raises the bar for compliance departments i don't know um but but thirdly and maybe most importantly it, 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 it explains why Every individual that ever gets banned is going to want to appeal because um, their track record for getting these things overturned is, is 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 not the worst in the world. So it's probably worth appeal, regardless, which is potentially going to just gum up the works uh, even worse. Um, I think there's one you you looked at though, is, whilst we're rattling through the fines uh, or non-fine actually, which is quilter, uh, which which is this is around pension transfer advice. Yeah, so. So Lighthouse Financial Advisory Services, which is a is now owned by Quilter, uh, basically has been censured rather than fined by the FCA over British Steel pensions advice. Uh, the FCA are unhappy for the usual reasons. Many of these clients were in a vulnerable position due to uncertainty around the scheme. Uh, advisors failing to challenge members' reasons for transferring out of the BSPS pension scheme or properly consider alternatives. Uh, which all told meant that 53% of advice provided by Lighthouse to BSPS members was unsuitable. So that's even higher than the average for the already not exactly covered in glory <laughs> BSPS advice levels, which was 46% being unsuitable. Uh, however, all of this misconduct took place before Quilter acquired Lighthouse in June 2019. Uh, and Quilter, by all accounts of what the FCA put out, have done exactly the right things about engaging with the regulator, being open, honest, transparent, carrying out a proactive redress exercise, which has uh, resulted in just over £23 million already being paid back to customers. So all this leads us in this slightly odd position where the FCA is kind of simultaneously censoring the subsidiary and yet almost in the same statement praising the the parent. I mean, Therese yeah. Chambers, the executive director for market oversight, said Quilter deserves full credit for taking responsibility for unsuitable advice given before they bought Lighthouse yeah. and for the proactive way in which they've worked with the FCA to put it right. Uh, yeah. A sort of a, a, a slightly more positive SCA yeah. final notice and pre associated press release than you usually see, frankly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like Lighthouse bad Quilter good, isn't it? I really get it, it shows, it shows um, well, I guess it, I mean, it is in the scenario where, you know, the, the detriment was triggered by in, a, in an entity before before they bought it so i guess they, they were never responsible for, for it but it shows i guess it, sh it shows that if you respond in a way the fca thinks is positive and you're seen to be doing everything you can to to make customers good etc then 
you know, the FCA aren't going to slap you with a fine just just because they can. Um, that they that they 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 think it's you know, uh, uh, I, you know, I guess it should be seen as a, as an as encouragement to try to do the right thing. Um, because it will be, you will get um, uh, some benefit in the final notice and, and in the lack of a fine. Um, I guess the, the one thing in the enforcement corner that we won't be talking about, Ben, but everybody else is talking about, is Crispin O'Day and the FCA is a, a supervision thereof. Well, actually, a lot of people are not, are not talking about Crispin O'Day's uh, um, supervision and they're talking about his, um, his other activities. But um, I mean, FCA uh, obviously have not uh, and did not take any kind of enforcement action against O'Day or uh, the, the, the firm or O'Day, the individual. I, I won't recount some of the allegations against Crispin O'Day. They're quite well in the public domain. Uh, but the FCA have been, have been having to defend themselves uh, regard, and, and have put out you know, some content on what they they did do there, um, which seems to have uh, seems to have sound centred around sort of trying to make sure that this individual was not included in any kind of position of perceived influence in the organisation. Although that, you know, given he owns he owns it, it's um that's uh, that's maybe that's maybe hard to, hard to do. But um, I, I guess beyond the supervisory aspects, it's it's, it's been interesting how um the the industry, the broader industry, is essentially done for O'Day much more quickly than than the supervisor did um, by pulling business, um, not wishing to be associated with an organisation that. Again, I, th I think I think I've had conversations with other people on this. I think it's maybe maybe less less about the fact that people like Crispin O'Day exist, and more about the fact that the the the, the governance and the oversight arrangements within O'Day seemed incapable of taking action. Against against him, so it's it's the, it's the failure of the failure of the organisation to do the, that organisation to do the right thing, rather than the fact that it happened in the first place. Um, but but yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's a it's a it's a reminder that you know a, a loss of confidence by your major counterparties will kill you off a lot more quickly than the uh, than the, the regulator um, can. Okay. Thank you, Ben, for sticking with us. I don't know whether uh, our listeners have also stuck with us. I hope so. I, uh, again, um, make a limited apologies for the length of the podcast, but I think there was a lot, a lot, a lot to get through. Um, you also have the whole of August to listen to this because uh, Ben and I are going to be on our holly bobs and so won't be recording. Um, but uh, I hope you all as well have a great summer break, get some time off. Um, I'm pretty sure the regulator will be getting some time off, so we should see things quieting down as we as we often do over the summer period. Um, we look forward to coming back and talking to you again in September. Until then, have a great summer. <laughs>